Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 23 today, Luke 23, starting at verse 35. We are in the second week of Lent, and therefore in the second week of our Lenten sermon series as well. And uh, as we introduced this last week, we are going to be, for the next six, seven weeks, looking at the seven phrases of Jesus that he said while hanging on the cross. Uh, traditionally known as the seven last words of Christ, word meaning phrase. Um, and so we are, we're taking each one of these in, and plunging deeply into them to, to look closely at why are these the things that Jesus chose to say in his dying minutes and hours. Very poignant statements. Last week we talked about God's initiative in our forgiveness, about how he took the initiative to forgive us And Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This week we're going to talk more about our response to his initiative. And so Luke 23, in verse 35, sets the stage for what's happening, what it looks like when Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says this, The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So you can hear the sarcasm. You can hear the snark in their voice. You can hear the uh, the contempt with which they are speaking. Are you able to truly save? Really? Can you do this? Then Then, secondly, the Roman soldiers jump in as well. And the soldiers also mocked him, it says in verse 36, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And so they're questioning his identity. Are you really the king of the Jews? And then secondarily, his ability. Can you truly save? And then, on top of the rulers and the Roman soldiers, there was a sign placed above his head that said this, this bloody, weak, dying man is the king of the Jews. You can see that not only is he in anguish, in pain, weak from loss of blood, but that he is also being insulted. And when all of these insults are being thrown at him, there's deep irony in what they're saying because they're questioning his kingship and they're questioning his ability to be able to save. And the truth is, is that Jesus could have saved himself at any moment. If we rewind just a few hours, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. John 18, Jesus is in the garden praying and Judas has gotten together a band of officers from the chief priests and soldiers and uh, because, because Jesus has shown himself to be so violent in the past, right? They literally 
come with pitchforks and torches. They have torches and weapons, and they come and find him. So there's a whole squad of soldiers and chief priests and Judas there. And it says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. So he walks towards them. He didn't run. He didn't cower. He walks towards them, and he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, listen here, they drew back and fell to the ground. One phrase, I am he. And the soldiers and their torches fell onto the ground and their armor clinked and their swords scraped in the dirt and they couldn't stand. Because what was Jesus saying when he said, I am he, was not just saying, oh, that, that's me. What he was doing is he is pointing back to the Old Testament, to how God revealed himself to Moses. That when Moses was about to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt and say, let the Israelite people go, he starts asking all of these questions. He gets really nervous. And one of the questions he asks is he says, okay, God, what happens if I go and say, Come on out, and the people say, what is the name of the God who has sent you? And God answers, tell them, I am sent you, Yahweh. It means, I am who I am, I was who I was, I will be who I will be, the existing one, I am. And so when these soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he says to them the name of God, I am, and they fall down in the dirt. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus was no victim here. When he was arrested, he went willingly. When he was nailed to the cross, it was he who held himself there, not wedges of iron. And this should add all the more to our awe and wonder because at any moment he could have plucked himself from the cross at any moment. And, and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that he is, was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. So it is, it is logical to assume that as he was in anguish on the cross, even then he was tempted to remove himself because he could have. At the snap of his fingers, at the, at the slightest utterance, do you remember when he was born, a multitude of the heavenly host appeared? This is rank upon rank of angelic soldiers, the army of heaven. They came just because he was born. And you can imagine that they were standing at the ready in heaven from this God who has come to be one of us and is being insulted and wounded. They were like, Jesus, just let us know. Just let us go. You one word. One word will wipe them all out. They won't know pain until we bring it to them. One word, and Jesus could have unleashed the armies of heaven to reduce his tormentors and his executioners to dust. And yet he stayed on the cross by not saving himself. He saved the world. He is the God of the universe. When they ask if He is King, He is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He has the sovereignty over death itself, we find. 
And yet he endured the cross out of obedience to God, out of his love for us, and out of the joy that he knew was coming. This is what Hebrews tells us. It says that we as Christians, that we need to look at Jesus on the cross as an example of our faith, of persevering in our faith, even when it's hard, even when we struggle, even when we're in pain, even when we're in sorrow. It says this in Hebrews 12, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen here. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus was not only saving us, but he also was providing a model for what our faith should look like even as we followed him after he was gone. And there are two witnesses that were in proximity, very close to Jesus, closer than most anyone else. On either side of him, there were two criminals who were being executed, crucified as well. Your translation of your scripture might say thieves. Um, the, the, the word literally is evildoers. And so there's a lot of conjecture about exactly who they were, that some would say that it's more insurrectionists, rebels, um, murderers, even. These, these are folks, they, they, they don't have unpaid parking tickets, right? I mean, these are significant sinners. That's why they're being crucified in such a public way. And there's one on each side of Jesus. And the, just as Jesus serves as a model for what our faith should be, These two, hanging on the cross on either side, model for us two possible responses to what Jesus is doing. The first is the response of unbelief, to mock the claims and kingship of Christ. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Railed means to speak evil of or to blaspheme. He's screaming at Jesus. But look, the screaming is not the issue. Even even the words are not the issue. Jesus can handle a tantrum from one of his creation. He can handle yours too. The issue is the heart of unbelief. That does not believe what that God himself has come to save him from death that he is facing He's joining his voice with those of all the crowd and the world that is around him who are doubting the truth of who Jesus is and Jesus' ability to save. And he's tossing his voice in with their voice and he is saying in the ear of Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Are you really able to do what you say you can do? It's a response of unbelief. And friends, Although our jeering, our mocking may not be with the same kind of overt insult, you and I mock the claims of Christ and his sovereignty and his kingship. When we turn to other things for our safety and our comfort other than him, when we turn to idols for our security, when we think that other things can save, when we put ourselves before the glory of God, we are mocking the kingship of God. And then there's the second response. 
the second thief, the second criminal. And these are our primary focus for today because what we see in this second criminal on the cross is that he responds with faith and repentance. He says this in verse 40, the other thief rebuked the first thief, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And here, in his anguish, in his pain, in the midst of literally dying, in more pain than he has ever been, and he utters one of the most theologically rich truths that we have recorded in the Scripture. It says this, You are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Let's break this down. He starts off by asking, do you not fear God? And here, friends, is the beginning of repentance. Fear of God. And you say, wait a second, Dan, that doesn't sound good. It seems like fear is something you want to run away from, uh, not something that you want to run towards. And you're talking about how much God loves us. Fear doesn't seem to be a good place here um, for us to have for God. But listen, fear uh, is, uh, is not a... Is not, um, that something is necessarily going to hurt you, but something that we must respect and has great power. So I do a lot of woodworking on my, on my days off, and I have saws and things, and I fear them. They are spinning metal blades that could cut my fingers off. I fear them. They're not evil. They're not chasing after me. But if I don't respect them, and if I don't operate things properly, and if I don't pay attention to what is happening, they have innate power within them to cause damage or harm. They can also build things that, do, that bless other people as well. But there is something to respect and a power there. And how much more, if that's true about an innate object, is it true about God himself? That we, re- we need to respect who he is. We need to respect what he could do to us. And honestly, it is very true. If God was an unjust God, if God was a God of wrath without mercy, then we're in trouble. Then we should cower and be afraid, just like so many other religions in the world that have to try to somehow pacify their prideful and fickle gods. But our God has revealed himself in his power and in his sovereignty as a God who is for us. And that's a good place. You can fear something that is for you. It's good. I'm a father of two boys. And I want them to feel loved and safe. I also want them to fear me. And that's good for them. Because if your son is seven years old or six years old and he's running out to the street and you tell him, stop, you want him to say, I fear not listening to dad. But why would I tell him to stop? So that he doesn't run out and get hit by a car. Now, if I'm a bad father, then my kids have something to, be terror, to have terror over. That's not what we're talking about. But when they, when they were small and they were in danger, what did they do? They ran right here behind my legs because they knew the power and the authority that their father has to keep them safe. We don't want a weak and not powerful God. And so the fear of God is the respect of who he is, of recognizing him. We find that he has power and authority even over death itself. 
the things that we should truly cower at, Satan, sin, and death, we run behind the legs of our Father, and He can protect us and keep us safe. Proverbs chapter 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's knowing our place and knowing who He is. And so when we know who He is, when we see in the Scripture that, that it is described that God lives in light inaccessible, that He is so holy and so pure and so good that we in our sinfulness cannot even look upon His face and live, we will die if we see the face of God because of how holy He is and then how sinful we are. We see Isaiah's vision of heaven where these angelic beings have eyes and wings covering up their eyes because of how gloriously beautiful God is and we in our state cannot stand in His presence. And there should be an aspect of fear. But this is why the assurances of the goodness and love of God are so wonderful. It's true that if he was bad and unjust, we'd be in trouble, but he is not. Here, we see this God hanging on the cross next to the criminal. He is not a God of unjust wrath. The most powerful and dangerous being in the universe has a posture towards us of love, and he uses that power to defeat our greatest enemies. So, this thief says, do you not fear God? And then he says this. He says something about, about the state of who God is. And then he says something about the state of where he and the other criminal and all of humanity is. He says, we are under the same sentence of condemnation. This is important recognition by this criminal because he is saying because of our sins, we are under the penalty of death. And this is the basic reality that we must come to grips with as well, that just like the criminal on the cross, we too are under a sentence of condemnation. And he goes on to say this, we're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, he says, it's just for us. This is right. This is what we deserve for our sins, for we are receiving the due reward for our sins, he says. In the Scripture, it tells us that that's true for us, that what our sins have brought about is death and pain and brokenness in the world. And we have to come to this, before we can come to a place of repentance, we have to come to a recognition of the glory of God and then the depth of our sinfulness. And when we explore those two things, we find out how far those two things are apart. That's not a small gap between the perfection of beauty and love and, and glory that is God and the, the depth of our depravity and our sin. Those two things are far far apart. Sin is a big deal, and we are justly under the condemnation of death. Romans that we read today says that the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 says you are dead in your transgressions and sins. We are, we are sinners. That's who we are. That's part of our identity. And what we see this criminal recognizing is that that is part of who he is as well. When we sin, we sin with sins of commission, things that we do that we shouldn't have done. We hurt people. We hurt ourselves. We dishonor God. We also have sins of omission, where there are things that we should have done that we, we, that we don't do. And we are often so blind to those things because we are blind to the righteous path that we should be walking on, we don't even realize that we're not doing the things that we should do. 
And then there's the third and insidious part of sin, too, that is our very nature. We're born with it. We're born with a proclivity to sin. As Tretch says, we're naughty by nature, not because I hate you. We have sin all around us in every aspect of who we are. And listen, this is the voices that the first thief joined in with. The, the voices of the crowd, the voices of the world are, are cursing Jesus, saying, who are you? And speaking as, uh, as if Jesus is the one who is lesser. And the voices that are around us are telling us an insidious lie as well that says you were perfect from birth. You were wonderful from birth. Everything was great from birth. And what you really need to do is find the true you and you just be you. And the more you that you can be, the more beautiful that it is. And it's all great. And the exhausting part of that is the more we that we get, the more you that you do you, the more we still hurt people. And it's never enough. And it's exhausting. And that's why we're full of anxiety and depression. We need to come to grips with our sinfulness. Listen if you're like, well, I, you know, I'm having a hard time listing my sins. Well, let me remind you of some of the things that we called out on Ash Wednesday in the litany of repentance. That these things are written as charges against us. That God's judgments against us are just. We are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. Listen to this. For all of our unfaithfulness and disobedience, for the pride, vanity, and hypocrisy of our lives, for our self-pity and impatience and our envy of those we think more fortunate than ourselves. For our unrighteous anger, bitterness, and resentment. For all the lies, gossip, and slander against our neighbors. For our sexual impurity, our exploitation of other people, and our failure to give of ourselves in love. For our self-indulgent appetites and ways. And our intemperate pursuit of worldly goods and comfort for our dishonesty in daily life and work, our ingratitude for, for God's gifts and our failure to heed His call, for our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for our wastefulness and misuse of creation and our lack of concern who those, for those who come after us, for all false judgments, for prejudice and contempt of others, and for all uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors, for our negligence in prayer and worship, for our presumption and abuse of God's means of grace, for seeking the praise of others rather than the approval of God, for our failure to commend the faith that is in us. The charges have been read, and we have been found guilty. These things are no mere mistakes. They are crimes against the God who created us. We are the criminals on either side of Jesus. But the thief goes on. The criminal goes on. He says, we, we indeed justly are under the condemnation of death. But, but this man has done nothing wrong. What a deep theological truth that this is the sinless God, the one who has come to be one of us. God himself has come to be one of us. As we said last week, the cross is important because of who died on it. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And therefore, the death he died, he did not deserve. And therefore, the death he died is able to pay the penalty for others, you and me, and the thieves on either side of Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our lives together and then come to him. 
He's not standing there as we are reading the litany and with his arms folded like this and a scowl on his face and going, be better, do better. You want to be with me? Be better. Sit in that shame that you've got because you know who you are. Be better. Jesus pursues us into our sin because he knows we can't be better without him and he hangs on the cross beside us. He enters into our sin, our shame, our brokenness, our pain. You see, some would claim what I have just opened up to you, which is basic Christian doctrine, would say that Christianity is a faith that oppresses. Because what an awful message that we've just heard, that we are worse off than we thought that we were going to be. But you see, the message doesn't end there. Christianity is not a faith of oppression. It's a, it's a faith of freedom. It's not a faith of shame. It's a faith of the removal of it. Jesus comes not to just commiserate with us in our sins, but to save us from them. The questions that are being shouted at him, are you really the king? Do you really have power? Do you really have authority? And can you, do you really have the ability to save? This second thief, this criminal, turns to Jesus and confesses his faith. He says in verse 42, And Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's recognizing the sovereignty of God. He is king. He has a kingdom. His judgments are just. He is powerful. He is the Lord. He knows whom he is addressing. He sees the justness of his sentence and the injustice of Jesus's, and he sees what God is doing for him, and he sees the love of his king and his Lord. It is so beautiful how this criminal addresses his Savior. He calls him by name. This is no distant God who's just running people through a sin and forgiveness factory. This is a personal God who is there, who could turn his head to look into the eyes of this criminal who is beside him in the same way that he looks into our eyes, yours and mine. And the criminal looks at him and says, Jesus. The wonderful name by which we all must be saved. Jesus, the sweetest sound for the sinner, for he is the lover of our souls and the savior of all humanity. Jesus, the name that is powerful, the name that can make the soldiers and the chief priests fall down. The one who is able to save. Jesus. And he asks this of Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to remember is not just a recall. It's not going, hey, you remember that guy that was hanging on the cross next to me? That's not what he's asking about here. He's saying, he's saying remember me. He's saying, he's saying, give me favor. So if I say to you, remember me when you win the lottery, I'm not saying, hey, 
look, I won the lottery. Oh, that Dan, he was a good guy. No, 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 I'm saying give me money. That's what I'm saying to you. If I say, remember me if you win the lottery. What he's saying here, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying, give me entrance. Let me come to be with you. Give me the status of a citizen again. Restore my dignity. Restore the brokenness that was within me and heal me and make me whole. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is repentance. To recognize the glory of God and our sinful state and the truth of our condemnation that is just and to come to Jesus and ask Him to restore us into the right order of His kingdom to remember us. But by what right does this thief have, have to ask Jesus for anything? He's a murderer. He's a criminal. He's being executed. It's certainly not his merit. He doesn't deserve it. There's no esteem and there is no, uh, there is no achievement that has got him to the place of earning Jesus' favor. And neither is there for you or for me. But what this thief does is he throws himself on the mercy of God. I have nothing to bring. I have no beauty, I have no achievement, I have no true wealth, I have no true resume, I have no anything that should bring me glory. I can only ask for your mercy. Perhaps the greatest verbal expression of repentance that we have comes from King David, the greatest and most powerful king that Israel had, a man after God's own heart, it says in the Scripture. And at the point that we read of his deep repentance, at this point, he has, he has committed adultery, he slept with another man's wife, and then he, then he tried to cover it up, and that didn't work. He had the man murdered. And... Then the local preacher comes and says to him, I know what you did. God knows what you did. And, and David responds by writing Psalm 51. And it says this. We will repeat it many times throughout Lent. Have mercy on me, O God. That's how it begins. I have nothing to bring to you except to just beg for your mercy and presume upon your goodness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Why would he have mercy? Because he loves us. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Friends, when we come to a place of repentance, this must be our heart. I know my sins. They're in front of me. I see them. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is the same phrases, the same kind of words that the thief is using on the cross. Your judgment is just. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The sin nature that we just talked about as well. And he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he asks David. David asks to be restored. He prays this. And I read this because there are no better words to explain this than what David himself says. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. That's a statement of faith and ability. 
Can you save? If you're the Christ, why don't you take yourself down from this cross and save us as well? Or do you not really have the ability to do that? And David is saying, you have the ability. If you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. And he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then he asks the Lord to heal him, to restore right order, create in me, he says, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David said, restore unto me, cleanse me, clean me, make me whole. The criminal said, remember me. And how does Jesus respond to the criminal? This is what he says in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, literally is the word amen. He says amen. Absolutely. So be it. Completely. For sure. Because of your faith and your calling upon the name of Jesus, it is absolutely true. When they are asking about does Jesus have the ability to save, he says you have asked absolutely. Yes. I have the ability to save. And what does he, what does he say? When, how is he going to restore, remember this thief? He says, you will be with me. You will be with me. This is a restored relationship. No more terror. No more is that power and authority feel like wrath is headed towards us, but rather we are behind his legs and he is defending us and defeating our enemies that his power and authority is for us. You will be with me. Not even just in my kingdom, but you will be with me. In the safety of his power. And where will we be with him? In paradise. The word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word for paradise, is the word that was used for the Garden of Eden. It's restored Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, David said. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, you will be with me in a place of order and worship and joy and forgiveness and friendship. He is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 before sin even came in Genesis chapter 3. And the thief didn't know it, but Jesus is also looking forward into what is described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where a new heaven and a new earth are described when Jesus comes to make all things new and restore all things and remember all of us as he comes into his kingdom. And the picture there is a picture of a city and a garden and God dwelling with his people in harmony with them and harmony with him. And there are no more crosses on hills and there's no more shame and there's no more tears that Jesus has come to renew all things. And so the faith of this thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom should be our call as well. Remember us. My sin is ever before me. Wash me and I will be clean. So who will you be? Which thief? 
Will anger and pride and trusting in your own self-righteousness lead you to mock the claims of Christ that would say you need a Savior and to say I'm fine on my own? That I think I have it all together? Will you mock the claims of the Scripture that says you are dead in your transgressions and that you need someone to speak to you just as Jesus spoke to Lazarus and say, get up and come out? Will your pride and your anger and your sin keep you nailed to that cross? Or will you turn to Jesus like the second criminal and say, remember me? You are the true king. You are the true and holy one. You are the one of depth and love. If you so will it, I will be made clean. And by faith, come to him to be restored. To repent, to believe, to be baptized, and to know the glorious love and fellowship of God who is with you now and will be with you forever. Today you will be with me in paradise. Will you come to a place of recognizing that although your sin is before you, it is washed white as snow in Jesus? That as we have talked about sin, as we read through the litany, if there are things that are being brought up, things that you wish that you could forget and try to keep buried down, but they keep poking their way up through that box that you're trying to shove them down in, and you're seeing these things that you say, I'm awful and I know what I've done, those things, have been forgiven. The sin in your innermost parts have been forgiven. Not just the small things, not just the little things that come to mind quickly or that other people know about, or when you're in a circle of accountability that you'll share those little things that you... No, no, no. I'm talking about the deep, dark nastiness of your soul. That Jesus' sacrifice is able. He is king in his sovereignty, in his ability to save. He reaches to the very depths of the darkness of your soul and cleans it. You have been made clean through Jesus. You have been set free. The shame that was yours, he now takes. And no, you don't deserve it. And no, it doesn't feel right that he would take it when it's you who committed those sins. Absolutely, it's not right. It's not just. Except that Jesus' love would take the justice upon himself in your stead. And you are forgiven. Which thief will you be? The one who dies in bitterness and anger or the one who in his surrender is full of great joy Enduring the cross because of the joy set before him. David finishes his prayer in Psalm 51 like this. Wash me clean, forgive me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. So if you come to this Jesus, calling upon his name in faith, repenting and believing, I say to you truly, you will be with him in paradise. And what are you called to? You are called to just as David has said. Teach others the good news that you have heard. And worship. You have a purpose in life to gather together, to sing praises to the one who has saved you fully and completely in his glory and his goodness and his love for you. We sing that's what we're going to be doing in heaven for eternity is worshiping. And so we do our best now 
This is our life, to teach others, to serve others, to worship the God who has saved us. A life of joy, of hope, of comfort. A life of forgiveness. Because he remembers us when he comes into his kingdom, if we but ask through repentance. So friends, let's pray together. Lord, convict us of our sin. Bring to mind those things that we need to hand over to you, our sins of omission and our sins of commission, the very nature of our heart and mind. Lord, let us off the train of trying to be self-righteous and failing and let us find true life and true glory and true release and true forgiveness and true joy and true hope in you by coming to you and repenting and believing. Let us hear the words as we say, Jesus, remember us as you come into your kingdom. Let us hear the words truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Fill us with great hope and joy, Lord. Your name is great above all names, for you are the God who is mighty to save. Let us be with you in paradise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.